2 Timothy chapter number 2. How good is it to be in the house of God tonight? What a blessing it is to be here. And I trust that you've been productive this week, living for the Lord, praying. I trust you've been praying. Have you been praying this week? I trust that you have, praying for our country and praying for our church family. I'll tell you, these are times that will make a man pray, aren't they? But I'm glad we have prayer. I, I was getting a little help when we were singing that. Uh, telling it to Jesus earlier tonight. I'm glad he listens, aren't you? Where would we be without a prayer hearing and answering God? I'm glad, listen, there's some folks won't pay no attention to you when you're troubled and burdened, but the Lord always listens, don't he? And I'm thankful that he hears and answers prayer. Second Timothy chapter number two. Let's begin reading in verse number one. Second Timothy chapter number two, verse one. The word of God says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your word. I pray you'd use it in the hearts of your people, that you'd draw us closer unto yourself. And Lord, above all, I pray that you would uh, make us more into the image of Christ. Remove those things in our life that don't make us look like him in our spiritual condition, Lord, and enhance those things in our life by our faith and, and by your word that make us look more like him. I just know, Lord, and I'm convinced that if we could if we could look more like Jesus in the way we live our lives, how much that would change our lives, our families, our church, our nation. So help us to be more like Christ, and may you be magnified in all that's done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past three weeks, we've been moving through Second Timothy chapter number 2, and we have been following sort of a theme in uh, Paul's writings here of uh, describing the station or condition or position of the believer, of the child of God. And there are seven different ways that the Christian is described here in 2 Timothy chapter number 2. We've looked at three of them and we'll preach on one tonight. If the Lord don't come back or if things don't all blow up, then maybe we'll get time to preach on the other three in the future here. But I want you to notice them with me. Back in verse number 1, Word of God says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here the believers likened to a son. Now, how many of you know everybody that's truly a Christian, uh, everyone that's truly righteous and right with God, they are only in that condition because they've been born again by the grace of God. Uh, God has no grandchildren, amen? It's not enough that your daddy or your, your mama or your, your grandparent was a child of God. If you've never accepted the Lord as your Savior, then He is not your heavenly Father. You are not His child. You may be God's creation, but you're only God's child by new birth, spiritual birth, believing on the gospel of Jesus Christ and receiving Him as your Savior. But you know what Paul's talking about here goes even maybe a step beyond. I don't want to say it disregards that truth, but it goes maybe a step beyond that because here he doesn't say thou therefore God's Son. He doesn't say thou therefore Jesus' Son. He doesn't say thou therefore the Son of the Heavenly Father. Rather, he says thou therefore my Son. Now what he's saying here, he's not talking about biological relationship. We know that to be true because in the book of Acts, we're told that Timothy's father was a Greek. And Paul, in no uncertain terms, in the book of Philippians, tells us that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, that we know his lineage. So what he was talking about here 
was a spiritual relationship. And here's what he's really hearkening to. It would also appear that Timothy was already one to the Lord whenever Paul met him. He already knew the Lord. But what he's saying is, I have poured myself into your life. I have invested in you. I have taught you the Word of God. I have showed you the truth of Christ. I have raised you up in the faith. And therefore, listen to my exhortation as one that watcheth for your soul. Man, that's a reminder to me that every one of us, we've had people in our life that have took an interest in us, that have prayed for us, that have shared the Word of God to us. And listen, we owe a lot more to the Lord Jesus Christ, but don't mistake it for one second. We also owe a debt to those spiritual fathers, those spiritual influences in our life that have brought us to the place of where we're at today. I could name off person after person, and time won't permit me, but suffice it to say, I sure enough wouldn't be standing in front of you today if there hadn't been folks that invested in my Life. So we're a son in verse number one. Verse three says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And here the believer is likened unto a soldier. Now this is in, in common theme in the Word of God. We're told in the book of Ephesians about spiritual warfare. We've got to put on the whole armor of God, withstand the devil. And over and over again in the Word of God, spiritual warfare is both referenced and exhibited before us. In fact, I think it's a strong statement uh, of evidence in the Word of God that All throughout the Old Testament, the temporal, physical battles that were taking place were merely the echoes, merely the ramifications of greater spiritual battles that were taking place throughout humanity. We read in the book of Daniel chapter 11, for instance, or chapter 10, excuse me, uh, about uh, spiritual warfare taking place in the palaces of Persia during the days of, of Xerxes and during the days of the great Persian Empire and how that there were literally satanic forces and angelic forces battling out for the destiny and future of that nation, that empire, and of its direct effect upon the nation of Israel. So listen, mark her down. There's spiritual warfare taking place around us day in and day out. It's not merely abstract, nor is it merely metaphoric for the inner conflict that we may all sense and feel. Now listen, understand there is a battle within us. The old man and the new man are constantly in conflict one with another. And we want the Lord Jesus to get victory. But it's not even really all the time so esoteric as that. There's plenty of time that it's literally uh, spiritual forces colliding and clashing in our life and in the lives of those around us. And if I read my Bible correctly, even all the way up to the highest places of human government. Now you say, preacher, what does all that mean? Well, it means you and I need to be ready to be soldiers of Jesus Christ. We need to be ready to suit up in spiritual armor. We need to be ready to stand against the wiles of the devil. And the sooner you recognize that the devil wants to destroy your life, your family, your children, your church, everything uh, that's honoring Christ in your life, he wants to strip away from you. The sooner you recognize that, the sooner you'll be a fit soldier. What is it that motivates a soldier to stand on the battlefield? Most of the time, it is not merely the defense of their own life. Uh, A warfare is not merely a contest in personal battle or in self-defense. Why are they on the battlefield? Because they know if that opposing force wins, they're going to destroy everything about their life that they love. It's no different in spiritual warfare, my friend. Listen, if you give the devil a place in your life, it's not he ain't just going to make you miserable. He'll destroy everything that's worth anything in your life. So the believer's likened to a soldier. Verse 5, and we talked about this last week. The Bible says, If a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. And here the believer's likened to a sprinter. And we use that, maybe it's a little bit of a narrow designation. It could be an athlete of any kind. 
But Paul seemed to be a fan of, of athletics. He used these analogies quite often. And what it basically suggests to us in verse 5 is that we are in a, in a contest, and it's not a competition with other believers, uh, but rather it is a, a contest to get victory for the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, and more importantly, maybe more pointedly, to give our all in the pursuit of the Christian life. It's not enough just to strive for masteries. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote myself. Is that okay? Is that like talking in the third person? Does that get you put in a straight jack? And I don't know, but I'm going to quote myself. All right. You ready? Uh, so many of us are strolling, uh, for mediocrity when we ought to be striving for the master. Uh, one of the, one of the chief points of that verse is, listen, don't go half in. No half measures in the Christian life. We ought to be pouring our all into it. But listen, it's not just that we be going, uh, living the Christian life passionately. We must be doing it properly. He says we've got to do it lawfully. God doesn't just care what you do. He does care what you do, but He does not only care what you do. He also cares how you do it. So we find that the believers likened to a sprinter. We haven't preached it yet, and I won't preach it tonight, but verse 15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here the believer is likened to a skilled laborer, uh, someone that is a master craftsman uh, that has spent years studying their craft and meticulously honing their skills so that they know that the product that they set forth will be impeccable in every way. And you know, uh, the Bible says that ought to be our attitude towards the Word of God. Uh, one of the great uh, scourges on modern day Christianity is a loose cavalier attitude towards the Word of God. A lot of this has come out of moral relativism and, and Marxist school of thought and a lot of it has come out of higher criticism and an attitude towards the Bible like we don't even really have a Bible. I, probably nobody tonight needs to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I believe we have a Bible. I believe it's this King James Bible. I believe we have the inerrant, inspired, preserved Word of God. And what you believe about that will determine much about who you are as a Christian. So much of modern day Christianity is just centered around this moral relativism of the Bible just means what you want it to be. Uh, no, listen, the Bible means what God says it means. It is distinct, it is descriptive, it is defined, and we ought to ascertain what is God saying to us. Uh, not what can we make it seem like God has said to me or to somebody else, but what has God said to us. Listen, what the craftsman does, a good craftsman, no matter what material he's working uh, in, he allows the, the piece, the material, the project to determine what it will become. In other words, he doesn't try to just wrestle and wrangle that material into what he wants it to be. Anybody, if you've ever seen woodworking, and I'll use that as one illustration, you can talk about masonry, you can talk about glass work, you can talk about metal work, but they will always tell you that the smart thing to do, find out the direction of the grain of the wood. Find out what it is it is uh, trying to become and make that thing whatever it's supposed to be. You know, that's what we're doing in the Word of God. We're not trying to go against the grain of the truth of the Word of God. So much of modern day Christianity is going flat in the face of the grain of God's Word. Instead, we're saying, Lord, what does your word say? And help me to better understand what you're trying to say to me. We ought to treat the word of God with that same kind of meticulous dedication. I'm not satisfied till I know what God's saying, both to humanity at large, to the people he's directly speaking to in the context of the passage, and to my life personally. So the believers likened to a skilled laborer. Verse 21 says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, and it's talking about wicked things and unrighteous, unholy things in his life, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Here the believers like into a sanctified vessel. Uh, just something that is, that is clean and, and sound, but nothing more. 
there's two things I want out of a cup or out of a drinking cup. Two things that I want. I want it to be clean and I want it to not have no holes in it. Can I get an amen? That ought to be something we ought to be able to. You may not amen anything else tonight, but you ought to be able to amen that. There ain't really a lot else I look for. Now, some of y'all, you want it to be a certain design. You want it to be pretty. You want to have this picture or that picture on it. But really, at the end of the day, one cup drinks as good as another if it is clean and if it is sound. You know, our lives are are varying and different. And there's not a person in this room that has identical experiences as another person in this room. Uh, but, you know, really what matters in our life is that we be clean and that we be sound that we be righteous with God and living in a righteous way and that we be sound, that there be no cracks in our life, that we believe right and that we do right and that we not be compromised by sin or unrighteous. And you know what God will do in that circumstance? He'll pour, you know, what matters, the purpose of the cup, unless you've got that fine china, what's more important is not the cup itself, it's what goes in it. That's what it's all about. That's why it exists. Now, maybe fine china might set up in a china cabinet, But typically speaking, the cup exists so that something can be poured into it and something can be dispensed out of it. You know, that's your life and mine. You know why we're here? So God can pour stuff into us and so God can bring stuff out of us. That's why we exist. And then verse 24, and there ain't much we'll say about it till we go to preach it, but verse 24 says, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. So here the believer is likened to a servant. And I almost even hesitate to say he's likened to a servant. I mean, the, the, the analogy, the illustration is so close as to almost not even be an illustration, but rather just a statement of description. What you and I are if we're Christians. Now, there's a lot of saved people that ain't Christians. A Christian is a person that lives like Jesus Christ. And to a degree, none of us could rightly call ourselves Christians. But the reason they first called them Christians in the book of Acts was because they were like Jesus Christ. There's a lot of saved people ain't living like Jesus Christ. But if a person's going to live like a Christian, here's what they're going to be. They'll be a servant. They'll seek to serve God and serve others. They won't view their life as a as a, an opportunity for elevation and advancement and enrichment, but rather they'll look at it and say, Lord, how can I serve you? How can I serve others for you. So here we find six different descriptions. We skipped over one because we're going to preach on it tonight. Look back at verse number six with me. The Bible says, the husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Now, can I admit to you tonight, and I I guess I can because I will, of all the verses that we've read, this verse has always contained the most mystery to me. And I suppose the reason why is because it is so concise, it is so short. And when you place it within the context of the other verses, the the context just displays clearly the meaning of all these other verses. But verse 6 really could probably be applied in a myriad ways in our life. And so what we're going to try to do tonight is only say what we can say about. And what I mean by that is, is maybe there are some things we could draw some assumptions, maybe there are some things, but what things can we say definitely about this verse? Well, the first would be this. Here this verse presents the believer as a sower, as a farmer, as a husbandman, as someone that works the land and seeks to put something into the land that will then multiply and produce and will yield more out of it than what was put in. Can I tell you something? And, and I don't know, I don't know I'm going to trust the Holy Ghost to make what I'm about to say clear to you. You understand God expects more out of you than He's put into you. He expects more out of your life than He has put into your life. What do we learn about the parable of the talents and the men that were entrusted with them? 
And we learn that one of them uh, used his talent to produce five other talents. And one of them used his talent to produce ten other talents. But one old boy, he did what everybody's doing right now. He went out and got him a, a, a you know a thirty caliber uh, ammo can, and he wrapped it in you know uh, saran wrap and took that talent, stuffed it down in there, and he caulked it all around, and then he buried it in the ground. That's what he did. If you know the Greek, that's what it says very explicitly. But he he, he took it and he buried it into the ground, and he waited for his master to come back. And when he comes back, he digs that thing up. And he goes and he says, here's the talent that you gave me. And he looks at him and he says, the talent I gave you. This guy produced five. This guy produced ten. All you've done is give me back what I gave you. And you know what he said about that man? He said, he called him a wicked and unprofitable servant. I hate to tell you this. We we think that, that God is just, you know, aiming to break even in our life. But that's not the truth. God expects more out of your life than what he has put into. Now, I'm not talking about his righteousness. I'm not talking about the sins that he's forgiven of you. But what I'm saying is this. His goal is not just to get you saved and on your way to heaven. His goal is to make you a servant of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ, someone that is producing for the Master. Meaning we ought to be winning people of the Lord. We ought to be growing in our walk with Christ. We ought to be, we ought to be salt and light to the world around us. We ought to be growing in our knowledge of the truth of the Word of God. I tell you the problem with some of us, and I guess we'll do a little preaching here before we preach. The problem with some of us is we done took what God gave us, stuffed it in the ammo can and buried it. We just took what God did and plopped it down on a church pew and sat down right on top of it. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're going to hand back to Him what He's given to us. That's not going to cut it, my friend. God expects more out of our life than that. So here the believer is likened unto a sower. Someone that must invest into the ground and have things drawn out of it for God's glory and for His benefit. And I want us to think about three thoughts tonight and then we'll be done. I want to say a word first about the illustration. What is God talking about when it says a husbandman? Now, I think it's understood that He's talking about a child of God, a believer. But in what way are we a husbandman? Number two... I want us to look at the application. Once we know what God's saying here, I want us to ask ourselves what that says to us. And then I want us to get to the exhortation before we're done tonight. And I want us to consider then what the Lord says about that. So first, let's think about this illustration. And there are several ways, I think, that a Christian can be likened unto a husbandman. I jotted down three of them. Listen carefully. I think that the illustration is speaking of us as husbandmen concerning the Christian's life. This is what we were talking about a moment ago with what God has invested in our life, in His in His salvation and in His Spirit that He's indwelt us with and, and in His Word that He has blessed us with and in the church in which He has planted us. God expects us to develop in light of that. Nobody puts a seed in the ground and expects to come back and dig up a seed. You always expect to have more than what you put in. So I think it could be a picture of the Christian's life. Number two, I think it could be a picture of the Christian's labor. In other words, uh, our effort for Him, our labor, our work, our service for Him. And I'll give you some verses about that in a moment. Then I think this is probably true, that we could say that it makes uh, a good sense to talk about the Christian being a husbandman as regards laying up treasure. In other words, working towards eternal ends in our life. So what about the Christian's life? 
There was a verse or a passage, uh, an ensemble of verses that were brought to my mind. We could probably go a lot of places in the Word of God. But listen to what it says in John chapter 15. Some of y'all can quote this with me undoubtedly. Verse number 1, Jesus speaking to His disciples said this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husband. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without it, me, without me ye can do nothing. Now I understand in John 15, in the illustration that the Lord Jesus is giving, he's likening us to being the, the branches and Him the vine and the Father the husbandman. But how many of you know this to be true, that we are not in point, in fact, in actuality, merely inanimate branches that are just merely growing at the whim of whatever biological impulses may flow through. That's what the evolutionists believe. Uh, what the Lord Jesus is communicating is the necessity of us staying in fellowship with Him. But He uses this illustration of husbandry to communicate this to us. And what he's saying is this, that God, in giving us life, is seeking to bring more life out of us. When a person plants any sort of crop, whatever it may be, they always anticipate getting more out of the ground than they put in. And God expects in your life and mine for us to develop spiritually. You ought to be closer to God today than you were a year ago. Now, let me go ahead and tell you right now, I'm not immune to backsliddenness, and I'm certainly not immune to apathy. I'm not setting myself up as though I'm to say that every single spiritual checkup I've had, I've always been healthier than the one before. Mom and Dad bought a uh, bought a scale, bathroom scale the other day. And uh, it's one of the, I'd never seen them before, because we don't own a bathroom scale, because we don't hate ourselves. And uh, But <laughs> this bathroom scale, it remembers what you weighed before. And I thought, well, that's what Facebook's for, you know. <laughs> and nothing more depressing than when one of those memories pops up. You look at it and go, man, I've got old fat, you know. But this thing, every time you step on it, it'll tell you how much you weigh. Well, that's fine. That's what a bathroom scale is supposed to do. Now listen to this. Then when you step off of it, it tells you how much you used to weigh. And then if that don't make it worse, it does the math for you. So you cannot hide from the reality, and tells you how much weight you have gained since that time. I guess the purpose of it is either to drive a man to depression or to keep a person accountable. And the purpose in it is to be able to say that every time you stepped up, when you stepped out, here's the progress that I've made. You know, it'd be good for us uh, to treat spiritual development that way. And, you know, we've got something even better than a bathroom scale for that. We've got the Word of God, which never changes. It never changes. You listen to me, it never changes. doesn't matter how politically incorrect the world declares it to be. doesn't matter how irrelevant academia tries to claim for it to be. God's Word never changes. We don't have to worry. Listen, there's some stuff. I mean, you ever, if you ever try to buy clothes uh, from some of them places in Asia, Asia people, they got sizes, but they don't mean nothing. You know, uh, if, if you buy like a large over there, you have bought something like a like a to, like a toddler medium, you know, and, and it just don't mean anything to us here. And probably the same way, you know, some poor Asian person got on Amazon and ordered a pair of clothes, and got a parachute in the mail and thought, 
land of milk and honey and giants as well, you know. I say all that merely to say this, you know, sometimes the world's standards can be relative. But, you know, God's standards are never relative. They're always absolute. They're always true. And you say, well, preacher, but some people might read it differently than others. You know, God knew that. You ain't surprising God when you say that. So he put the author in our hearts, in our lives, to tell us when we're treating the Word of God incorrectly, when we're trying to, when we're trying to manipulate it or warp it or change it or, or, or color it some direction that's more beneficial to us. So I would say this, we ought to all be looking at ourselves spiritually, spiritual development. And I'll say a word more maybe about that here in a second. Number two, what about the Christian's labor? Well, you know, we are fellow laborers with God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 6, Paul said this about the ministry at, at, at Corinth. He said, I have planted Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is it he that planteth, and neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's builder. So in other words, the Christians, not only their life, but their labor. What we're spending our time doing, how we're investing our time. It's almost like a, like a farmer does. Why do people, and I learned this, there's a difference between farming and gardening. Uh, farming is something that you do on a big scale and you do it efficiently and you know what you're doing. Gardening is what I do and it generally costs me more than it would just to go to the store and buy it. Uh, but if a person's going to farm effectively, they have to farm efficiently. Me and Dad were talking about this the other day when we were out west a few years ago. We drove through some of those big cornfields and wheat fields and stuff in, in, in Nebraska and Kansas, places like that. And I mean, it's just it's just thousands and thousands and thousands of acres that they have. And these people literally, they have to go to college and get an eight-year degree to learn how to farm just to understand the equipment and to understand the logistics of what they're doing. Listen, it, it ain't Papa out digging up spuds in the back garden anymore when it comes to this mass production of food. I mean, it is a, a, an amazing amount of effort that goes into what they're doing. You know why they do that? It's not a hobby for them. It's their life. It's their work. It's their labor. If they don't do it effectively, if they don't do it efficiently, banks going to come back and, and is going to repossess that big combine. Banks going to come and foreclose on some of that land and some of that property. So they're trying to do it as effectively and efficiently as possible. You know, in, in your life and mine, that's how we ought to treat the labor uh, that we invest for the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be viewing it saying, you know, my, my goal is not to break even. I wonder, can I just ask you this simple question? And I'll make you a deal. This is going to be a hard question, but I'm going to ask it and move on. How many people are you taking to heaven with you? How many people are you taking to heaven with you? How many people are going to be on their way to heaven because you want them to Christ, because you had an influence in their life? Or did God plant a seed in your life and it blossomed and bloomed and brought forth a crop of one? God expects more than that. We ought to expect more than that. We ought to be laying up our uh, not only our labor, but then I would say this. I told you I'd move on. I don't want to, but I'm going to. <laughs> it, I think, also could, could deal with uh, the Christian laying up treasure. In other words, we're farmers in, in the sense in our life that we are trying to bring forth a crop of, of development, of spiritual development in us. We're trying to become more than what 
we were when God found us and saved us more for Jesus Christ. Number two of our labor, we're trying to produce more than what God has put in our life. We're trying to win people to Christ and make an influence and reach the world around us. But then number three, I would say this, there's probably a similarity between the farmer and the way that the farmer uh, plants the crop and expects a yield and the way that Christians ought to be laying up treasure in heaven. I'm not going to get into uh, the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. We could. We could spend a lot of time there. Uh, we could do a whole series there. But suffice it to say over and over again, uh, when Christ is teaching these parables, he likens the kingdom of heaven unto a man taking in, in several different places, depending on which parable you're looking at, but taking something precious, stowing it away until the time expected, and then it being revealed and disclosed and exposed as producing more than what anyone would have ever reckoned to be so. Now, there's much we would say if we were talking about what the Lord was saying there about the kingdom of heaven. But you know, that's exactly what we're doing about investing our time and our life and our energies in laying up treasures in heaven. The world doesn't see and the world doesn't understand and the world doesn't comprehend what the Christian's trying to do in this life. Uh, Part of our problem is we've laid up all of our treasures down here. And if we can't see a good yield and a good return down here, we're just uninterested in it. But you know, the Bible teaches over and over and over again that where we ought to be investing ourselves is not in this life, but in the life to come. Not here, but in heaven. And so I'd say the same way that the farmer takes that seed and plants it in the ground and he cannot see it, he doesn't watch it grow, at least in the early stages of it, and there's a certain amount of faith that he must exhibit that one of these days that plant is going to break through the ground and it's going to begin to produce in the same way we're investing our life and our energy in heaven. We're trying to to lay up things in heaven that are going to be of value and of meaning. We're not talking about money. We're not talking about treasure in a monetary sense, but we're talking about uh, living our life for Jesus Christ. Paul described it this way in Philippians chapter 4, talking about the the, uh, giving of the church. He says in verse 15, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity. Now listen to what he says. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Uh, Brother Jonathan um, Vandenberg mentioned this the other day when he was here, that most assuredly when we're investing in the things of God, We may not ever see a temporal return on those things, but you better believe we'll see an eternal return on those things. Uh, Paul says here, there's going to be fruit that's going to abound to our account, and that's true of our monetary giving, but it's true of many other facets of the Christian life. So I would say that that's the illustration. I would say at least one of those three ways, probably all of those three ways, we could say clearly that the Christian is like a husbandman. Now, what's the application of that then? And I told you I'm not even really going to preach this. I'm just going to mention it because I want to get to my closing thoughts here. What would be the application? Well, obviously, it would be that we should be planting. That's what a husbandman does. A farmer that doesn't farm isn't no kind of farmer. And a person that is tasked with planting things and never puts anything in the ground is of no value and no worth in their task. So what should we be planting? Well, if we're talking about the Christian life, I would say this, we ought to be planting a crop of personal development. In other words, we ought to be making sure that day in and day out, we are investing our time and energy and effort into being a better Christian than we were the day before. You know, it's funny, we were talking the other day, I cannot remember who I was talking to, but we were uh, discussing 
uh, some of the world's philosophies and how they echo Bible truth. And, you know, it's interesting. You listen to these self-help gurus and, and, uh, and some of these personal life coach guys and all this. And the only thing they're really successful at is getting other people giving money. Uh, but, but if you listen to those guys, a lot of times the things they say echo clear, plain, simple Bible truth. One of the things they will consistently say is that if you're going to have any kind of success in life, here's how you do it. You create an actionable plan and you follow it. You plan it out. What's the old statement? You either, you either fail to, or you, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? What about in your Christian life and my Christian life? Are we setting about actionable goals? Are we saying to ourselves, here's what I want to be. I want to be reading my Bible at this consistency at this time. I, I want my prayer time to grow by this much over the next year. Hey, listen, we all done forgot about New Year's resolutions. You know, there was a New Year's revolution and we forgot we were supposed to be having New Year's resolutions, right? But no, in, in normal circumstances, everybody would be pretending like they're going to go work out all year right now. And one of the goals behind doing that is to say, I'm going to create actionable steps to these things. The sad truth is very few Christians even go so far as as the average, you know, large tub person like me does about going to the gym. We don't even buy a membership, right? Uh, the truth is, most people that are that are going to uh, pay for a gym membership uh, 11 months longer than they're going to use it this year are doing more to set themselves up to be healthy in this next year than most Christians are doing to set themselves up to be spiritually healthy this next year. Are we making any effort at Oh, we should be. I would say, number two, we ought to be planting the crop of spiritual advancement. And so what do you mean, preacher? Well, the first, I would say, is personal development deals with growth. This, I would say, deals with the gospel. The gospel. What are we doing to see the gospel go out into the hearts and into the, the ears of people this year? Me and Fred were talking, and Fred mentioned it last week, and, and I appreciate him saying this. We, we, we were talking about uh, Brother Corey, and he's wanting to go to races and, and you know, give out tracts and... and Share the gospel with with some folks and particular ones that he's got in mind. And, uh, you know, I laud that. I'll tell you this. If you have no plan, you're probably not going to do it at all. I remember years ago, and I've told this before, so if you've heard it, that's all right. You've probably heard all this before. But uh, I remember hearing years ago, my pastor talk about uh, somebody got mad with him one time over the way that he did soul winning. And they came up to him and, you know, when you're a preacher, sometimes people come up and blow up on you. And the reason why is because they've been thinking about that conversation ever since last Sunday when you said something to make them mad. And then all the way on the drive to church and all the way on the walk in the parking lot. And they finally get to you and they think you're going to punch them in the mouth. You know, they've worked themselves up. And so somebody stomped up to him one day and said, I don't like the way that you soul win. And uh, with the wisdom that only age can bring, he looked at him and said, uh, well, how do you do? And they said, well, I don't. And he said, well, I like my way better. <laughs> he probably didn't win that person, I guess. But you know, there's some wisdom there. Most of the people that want to criticize are folks that ain't doing nothing at all. And their criticism stems from guilt. It doesn't stem from actually believing there's a better way to do it. It stems from resentment over the fact that you're doing it at all. Because your doing it exposes their lack of doing it. One of the amazing phenomenons, and I'm not going to get into a whole big thing, but one of the amazing phenomenons I've seen over this past year uh, in so much of the, the pandemic stuff is the rage and the anger and the criticism and the resentment and the spite towards churches that are meeting and having church. And it astounds me for this reason and this reason alone, if if 
you're concerned. If you don't believe you ought to be here, nobody's going to go to your house and frog march you out the front steps and make you come to church. But a lot of it has been rooted in sort of a dissatisfaction that church is happening at all. I believe part of the reason for that is this. Listen, if you have peace of mind and, and, and peace of heart that home is where you need to be, that's between you and God by all means. Uh, but I wonder if some folks are feeling guilty because anybody's having church because they're not having church. That's all right. I'll take that cough as an amen at this point. I, I'm not mad. I'm not picking on nobody. I promise you. I, I'm really not. I'm just saying. I think a lot of it comes from they don't want folks to have church because they don't want to have church. They want to be at home. Now, it's not to say everybody that needs to stay away and needs to be safe, but I'm saying most of the time. Can I tell you what I experienced as a pastor? When I first uh, came to church, there'd be a lot of folks. We'd have any snow. We'd have a snowflake fall on the ground. And I always found that it was the folks that lived the closest that got the angriest that we didn't close. You know why that is? Because they knew they'd be expected to come. Folks living out in the country that had to sled down the driveway really didn't care what my opinion was. They weren't going to come to church anyway. And they wasn't getting mad at me and didn't really care one way or the other because they said if preacher wants to go have church, he can go have church. I can't get out of my driveway. And I think there is a similar dynamic when it comes to a lot of the pandemic stuff. Uh, I've said from the beginning, and you know this, if you've been around any length of time, I've told folks from the beginning, do as your conscience dictates. And uh, folks have been really good. I mean, they really have. I've got nothing to complain about. But I've heard a lot of pastor friends that deal with horror stories of folks just, I'm talking getting, getting mad at them, getting mad at them, preacher. Can't believe you're having church. And and they've told them that if you don't feel like you need to be here, you then don't be. That's fine. But people getting angry, people getting mad, and you know a lot of the reason why is because the fact that those churches are having church exposed exposed the fact that those people didn't want to go to church. There are some people heartbroken over what we've been through, and I'm heartbroken over what we've been through. We've got people in our church that would give anything to get to be here that can't be here, and truth be told, they don't need to be here. And I understand that. Don't get me wrong, uh, but. Listen, in the church of America today, don't, don't, don't fool yourself. There were some folks who didn't mind taking a year off from church. All right, you can be mad at me now. So, I'm not mad at you. I hope you're not mad at me. I'm not trying to make anybody mad. I'm saying this. Sometimes in our life, the, we, the reason we resent somebody else and what they're doing is because we know we ought to be doing it. And we're not. And it'd be a lot easier to not do it if everybody just not do it. In our life, listen, what are we doing to personally, actionably, do the work of God in this next year. So I see the crop of spiritual advancement. And then finally, and I'm not going to say much about it, I see the crop of eternal investment. Uh, in other words, we ought to be actively laying up our treasure in heaven. I'll tell you this, man, we'd have a lot more peace of mind if we'd just go ahead and pull our tent stakes up out of this world's soil and just get it in our head and heart that this world is not our home. And it's not. It's not. I, I, I'm, I'm troubled, just like you are, man. I, it, it bothers me. It burdened me. I quit watching the news. I couldn't handle it anymore. I, I, was, I ain't got no hair, and what I had was turning gray, and I, I, just, I can't handle it anymore. And you know, God gave me a lot of peace when He reminded me it's not mine to handle in the first place. It's not. Hey, what do we preach about on Sunday? Here we have no continuing sin, but we seek one to come. That's where we ought to be laying up our treasure. Let's say a few words about that exhortation, then we'll be done tonight. So when we look at the illustration, the Christian, how is he like a farmer? Well, it's an illustration of the Christian's life. It's an illustration of the Christian's labor. It's an illustration of the Christian's laying up 
of treasure. What's the application then? Well, we ought to be planting. Right? A farmer that doesn't plant isn't much of a farmer. We ought to be planting the crop of personal development. We ought to be planting the crop of spiritual advancement, of the work of God in this world. We ought to be planting the crop of eternal investment, laying up treasure in heaven. But now, what does the verse say? The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. So what's the exhortation? Well, I did a little bit of praying and meditating and thinking about this. And I believe we could uh, answer it by asking this question. When is it talking about partaking of the fruit? Is it talking about partaking before you plant? Or is it tar- talking about partaking after the harvest? I would say this, depending on your perspective of that, and it could be that the Holy Ghost is just deft enough and just adept enough to be saying both. And, you know, even, listen, the the clarity of God's Word is inspired, but understand the obscurity of God's Word is too. And so, which is he talking about? Well, I thought about three things. He's saying to young Timothy, you're a farmer, you're a husband, you're doing the work of God, you're growing in the grace of God, you're laying up treasures in heaven just like a farmer is planting his crop in the earth, expecting a future yield. And for that, Timothy, you're going to have to, before you do anything, you're going to have to eat this crop. Why is that? Well, I think, number one, because of the need for strength. The farmer must eat the crop in order to have strength to plant the next crop. You see, a, a farmer, a husbandman, always starts off with a certain supply of seed. Where did that seed come from? Well, it could be heirloom seed that's been passed down generation from generation to generation. But somewhere along that lineage, you're going to find somebody that plucked an apple from a tree and ate it. And looked at those seeds and said, you know, I'm going to hang on to those, and I think I'm going to see if I can plant an apple tree. You're going to find somebody that somewhere out in the wilderness, one of the, you know, pulled, pulled green beans off of a vine, said, I think I might be able to eat those, and pulled some of those beans out of the pod and said, I'm going to hang on to them and see if I can grow those very things. But it all began somewhere with eating. You remember that the Bible says that God planted a garden in Eden and put man in it. The first garden and ever done, the first plant and ever done, God did. We don't see man gardening, we see man eating. Where did he get the seed that he then went and worked the soil with? He got it from eating. Why did he do that? Well, because if you're going to do anything, you're going to have to eat and have the strength to do it in the first place. <laughs> it's always funny, man. You sit down at Cracker Barrel or, or maybe you do this at home. I hope you do. Sit down. You have, one of my favorite things to do is eat a big country breakfast. Now, I know as trim as I am, that's hard for you to believe, but... I love breakfast food. I love to eat a big, I mean, biscuits and gravy and everything, you know, eggs. I, I love it, you know, bacon and sausage, all of it. And, you know, how many times have you heard someone, you've been eating that kind of meal and heard someone say something like this? You know, this is how people used to eat all the time. You ever heard that? People used to eat like this. When I was growing up, people used to eat like this all the time. And that's true. And you know why they didn't die of a heart attack? Because they then went out and worked 16 hours, hard manual labor. <laughs> that's why they could eat like that. Because they could then go out and and do that immediately afterwards. You know why they ate like that? They needed those calories. If they went out and tried to do the work that they were getting ready to do and didn't eat that kind of a breakfast, man, they'd, they'd be fainting by midday. They needed all those calories. And the cholesterol didn't matter and the salt didn't matter. They were going to sweat it all out anyway. It didn't matter. They ate that big meal because to do the work that a farmer did, it takes a lot of strength. Can I tell you, before we can ever do any of these things in our life, we need the strength of God. We've got to be partaken of the spiritual fruit. You remember the in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus likened the Word of God to seed being sown. 
we've got to partake in the, in the meat of the Word of God before we'll have the strength to do any of these. Then I would say, number two, uh, they would do it for, for strength, but number two, uh, they had a need for seed. They had to have something to plant. Uh, in other words, what the world needs, I hate to tell you this, this is going to crash your party. What the world needs is not more me and you. What the world needs is more Jesus Christ. Social media has messed us up, man. I'm talking about it'll take, it'll take students of the human mind and nature hundreds of years to unravel what social media has done to us in 15 years. Because it has made us all the centerpiece of our world. It's turned us all into narcissists. It's made us all think that we're God and we set over this little world that we control. And if somebody says something you don't like, just unfriend them. They don't even exist anymore. You don't leave the house, so they don't even exist. You won't run into them. And you just ax them, you know. And uh, <laughs> how do we get there? I don't know how we got there. Do you know how we got there? Somebody help me get back in my sermon. But um, <laughs> how do we get there? I don't know. I guess we'll have to move on. I was going to say something. If, if it occurs, if a good thought occurs to you, text it to me later. Uh, the farmer must harvest the crop to have seed for the next crop. Here's what I was getting at. You ready? I knew, I knew the Holy Ghost remind me. He, he'll make a fool out of me and then he'll remind me of it. He does that to humble me, uh, sometimes a little bit. But social media has made us think what the world needs is more of us, more of our opinion, more of our pictures, more of our witticisms. But that's not what the world needs. I got news for you. Listen, Facebook said, Facebook asks what you're thinking, but they don't care and nobody else does either. What the world needs is not more us. What the world needs is more Jesus Christ. The, the, the truth is, it's not intrinsic enough. This is what I'm trying to get you to understand. We need the seed of God's Word if we're going to do anything meaningful in this world. It's not us that the world needs. It's not our opinion. It's not our thoughts. It's not That's not what's going to fix the world. That's not what's going to help the world. So if we're going to go out and plant something, it better not be us that we're planting in the world. We better be planting the seed of the truth of God's Word. We've got to get the seed before we can do anything. And i got news for you. You're not going to be able to help anyone, and I won't either unless we've been in God's Word getting the truth of it. And then I would say this. Now, that's if he's partaking in it before he plants. But it is possible. It is possible what, what Paul and the Holy Ghost had in mind when they said this was they meant after a farmer goes out and gathers crops, before anyone else eats of it, he has to eat of it. Why would that be the case? Well, I would say this. There's a need for strength and there's a need for seed. But there's also a need for sincerity. Why would a farmer do such a thing? Well, to show to the people he's wanting to sell that crop to that what he's eating of is worthwhile, that it's good. You know what this world needs in your life and mine? It needs sincerity. It needs sincerity. Part of the reason we find ourselves powerless in our, in our world to make an influence is because they see us trying to peddle a crop that we're not feasting on. We're telling other people to straighten up, but we're not doing. We're telling other people to live right and get right and do right, but we're not doing it. Why would they? Why would they? What is the universal sign? I know you've seen this in movies. I have too. The universal sign if two enemies are sitting down and they're going to eat something or drink something and they want to prove to the other person there's nothing wrong with it is to reach over and take a bite or take a sip of it. To prove to that other person, hey, there's nothing wrong with it. I'll prove it to you because I'll partake in it. You know what the world needs is to see us partaking in God's Word and God's truth and the work of God and the things of God. And pretty soon as they watch that, I tell you, man, we got a hungry world. You don't believe that? Look around. 
man. Does, does this look like a world that's got it together? I, and I understand that could have always been said to some degree, but I mean more so today than it has ever been. Turn on the TV, take a break from your break from the news and turn it on, look at, for, look at it for two seconds and ask yourself, has the world got it figured out? No, man, and they know they don't. They know they don't. But what they're waiting for is they're waiting for somebody to come along with the truth that can prove to them and show to them that it's good. The Bible says we ought to taste and see that the Lord is good. I believe if we taste of the Lord, others will see us taste of the Lord. If we say it's good, others will see that it's good. We've got to have sincerity if we're going to be what we need to be for Jesus Christ. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I don't know what the Lord may have said to your heart, but I do hope, whatever it is, that you'll respond in obedience unto Him tonight. Father, I pray for this invitation. pray that your people will get help. I pray that you'll, they'll move, they'll respond unto you for your glory, for your honor. We ask it in Jesus' name.